Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Hack Podcast. I'm your host as always, Wayne Simmons. As usual, another jam-packed episode for you. We're kicking off of a reading, not from myself, but from best-selling horror author and sci-fi author David Moody. He's going to be reading an excerpt from his latest apocalyptic thriller, Straight to You, and it's an excellent book. We'll be catching up with Sean Smith, writer and editor of Skin Deep Tattoo Magazine. Um, And Sean and myself have a wonderful conversation just on the different ways in which we write, along with some of the challenges there are to uh, getting yourself disciplined into a writing routine. So it's an interesting chat for sure, particularly for anybody who is um, a writer themselves or trying to get into writing. Bran M. Sammons is our guest judge for this month's Flash Fiction Competition. Bran is an editor and author, um, and uh, he's working with a variety of different presses, including um, Dark Regions and also Permuted Press. Music this month is from Galactic Cowboys once more. For details on the Galactic Cowboys or anything to do with this month, including Brian's Kickstarter project, just visit waynesimmons.org. Click on the link for podcasts. Episode 6 will be listed there, and all of the information you need will be there. Okay, so without further ado, let's get stuck in. In Straight to You, the sun is dying. The temperature across the world is increasing by the hour, and the planet is being battered by... Uh, energy pulses, huge waves of light and heat that are increasing in ferocity and frequency. The end of the world is very obviously close at hand. It might be in a week, it might be a couple of days, but we might only have hours left. Stephen Johnson is trying to get to his wife. It's a cross-country drive from Cambridge to North Wales and they've been separated at absolutely the worst possible time. At this point in the book he's approaching Birmingham It's midway in his journey. He's been stuck in his car for the entire day with a passenger who he very much regrets giving a lift to, a friend of a friend of a friend called Roy. Late afternoon merged into early evening. Time was playing tricks again. Although it felt like each individual minute was taking an eternity to pass in Roy's company, the hours continued to disappear with alarming alacrity. It was the concentration, Stephen decided, having to maintain his relentless fixation on the road ahead, moving at a snail's pace but being unable to look away from the tarmac strip for fear he'd drive into the back of another car or not see another obstruction in time or drive through a pothole. Roy had hit the nail on the head a short time earlier. You've got to conserve the car, he said. If anything happens to it, mate, we're fucked. A puncture, flat battery, anything. Even if you're in the RAC or AA, forget it. No one's going to come and help. No more green flag. We're on our own now. Though a psychological blow to Stephen, because it confirmed he'd spent the entire day on the road and had yet covered barely half the distance planned, the setting sun came as something of a physical relief, the increasing gloom finally providing some respite from the endless daylight glare. It felt slightly cooler, even though it wasn't. They'd finally reached the end of the A14 and had joined the M6, and a junction of the two routes proved to be less of an ordeal than Stephen had imagined it would be. There were endless columns of traffic trying to drive in the opposite direction. Few are going their way now. They're all trying to get out of the city, aren't they? Roy said, offering an unrequested explanation. That's it, I'm sure of it. They're trying to get away from Coventry and Birmingham. It's only dozy fuckers like us still trying to get closer. 
They filtered onto the M6 with relative ease, joining the traffic which appeared here to be no busier than a typical rush hour. The six lanes of motorway stretched away into the distance, and there, far on the horizon, Stephen knew he'd soon see Birmingham, the second city, a sprawling industrial relic of a place he had only a passing familiarity with. It felt good for a short while, making steady progress while the traffic trying to get the other way could do little more than sit and watch, but that relief was short-lived. He realised that whatever gains were made during this part of the drive would doubtless be negated when they passed through the city and tried to get out the other side. Roy reached into the back for a bottle of water. He found one with his outstretched fingers, opened it with his teeth, took a large slug, belched, then passed the bottle to Stephen. Stephen's throat was so dry he'd probably have still drunk from the bottle if he'd watched Roy piss in it first. I've been saving that until seven, Roy said, wiping his mouth and drinking again. Can't believe it's seven o'clock. We've been on the road almost twelve hours. Tell me about it. But, thankfully, Roy didn't. But he did look back again shifting his bulk uncharacteristically quickly in his seat and knocking into Stephen's arm so hard he veered to the right. What the hell are you doing, Stephen protested. Shit. What is it? Stephen tried to look around too. Keeping one eye on the road ahead, he glanced back and saw that the horizon behind them had begun to glow with yellow-white light. In the fraction of a second he was watching, he saw the brightness start to spread, burning through the dark. He turned back and grabbed the wheel with both hands, trying to focus, not knowing what else he could do. The pressure wave hit them hard. The car rocked violently and Stephen panicked, figuring he'd driven into the car in front. He hadn't, but as savagely as they were shunted forward, they were then blown back again. It was the strangest sensation, a momentary increase in air pressure pushing down on them, which ended almost as quickly as it had begun, making him feel bizarrely weightless in his seat, like he'd driven over the top of a roller coaster track. He braced himself, because he knew what was coming next. He could see it in the rearview mirror, a reflection of the coming white-hot storm. Stephen swerved over towards the hard shoulder, somehow avoiding countless other cars which did the same, crisscrossing and colliding with each other. He stopped the car and threw himself forward, covering his head as the world was filled with unbearable, searing light. His and Roy's faces were just inches apart, but neither man said anything to the other, throats parched dry with fear. Stephen's eyes were screwed shut, but he could still see the light. He could feel it on his back now, prickling his neck and his arms and over the noise of the engine they could both hear a crescendo of terrified sounds coming from outside, a roaring dry wind which barely muffled the many screams and cries for help, hundreds of people's combined panic quickly becoming a single horrific chorus of helpless desperation. There's nothing I can do, Stephen thought to himself, praying that the light would begin to fade. There's absolutely nothing anyone can do. And he thought about all those fucking stupid Hollywood films where bad actors, bad science and bad writing combined to save the day, and he already knew that wasn't going to happen here. No Clint Eastwood or Bruce Willis to be dragged out of retirement to pilot a reconditioned space shuttle and save the world. No hastily designed bomb to be fired into the heart of the stunt to, to kickstart a chain reaction and restore order to the dying star. Nothing. Fuck all. No way out. He thought the wind and light would never end, but eventually it began to fade. Next to him, Roy was crying, shaking with fear. When Stephen lifted his head again, just a few seconds later, the world had changed dramatically. They were surrounded by noise and frantic activity now, the relative order of the traffic replaced with a panicked, unruly mess, vehicles strewn everywhere. Many drivers remained shell-shocked, as slow to react as he himself was, but others had already composed themselves enough to be able to drive on, weaving in and out of other still stationary vehicles, squeezing forward a few more precious spaces until their way ahead became blocked. He thought he should maybe do the same, 
but he knew it wouldn't help. So he might manage to drive a few metres at speed. So what? It wouldn't last long. There's no point racing, he thought. I won't get there any quicker, if I get there at all. As if to prove the point, over to his right, the driver of a large Mitsubishi truck tried to bulldog his, his way through a rat gap which wasn't there. He collided with the back of another car, which managed to keep going, the speeding truck coming off a surprising second best despite its size. The driver fought to keep control, but lost it completely and steered straight into the central reservation, buffalo bars trapped on the metal, metal entangled with metal. The traffic drove round the back of the wreck like water running round a boulder in a stream. The driver accelerated, rocking his vehicle backwards and forwards as best he could, but he wasn't going anywhere. No one was helping him either. Stephen had no intention of getting involved. A mountain of a man, the driver got out and tried to free his truck by hand, an obviously impossible task. He was crying like a baby, and Stephen could see there were several kids in the front of the truck with him. Do you think we should... he started to say, but Roy didn't answer. Stephen turned towards him and saw he was staring up at the sky. His mouth was hanging open and tears streamed from his eyes. What is it? Roy just pointed. Look at that. Jesus Christ. There was an aeroplane falling out of the sky. It was impossible to accurately judge its size because its tail and one of its wings were on fire. It burned like a meteor across the rapidly darkening sky, arcing overhead and fragmenting, leaving a dirty billowing vapour trail behind. Brilliant, glowing white traces blossomed as the plane disintegrated on its way back down to Earth, huge fragments splitting away from the main fuselage like fireworks. Stephen couldn't stop watching. It reminded him of being a child again, watching the space shuttle explode on TV. But the spectacle was secondary. What about the people? His head filled with nightmare thoughts, how those passengers must have panicked thousands of metres up when the energy pulse struck the plane. It had been frightening enough down here on solid ground when he could at least fool himself into thinking he had control. But up there, Christ, it didn't bear thinking about. He watched the largest intact piece of the burning fuselage, just a stump of one wing remaining there, begin to spin and spiral towards the ground. We need to get out of here, Roy said. Seriously, Steve, just keep moving. Stephen looked around and edged forward, trying to find a way through the madness. The previously well-ordered motorway traffic had degenerated into chaos. I don't think we're going anywhere fast tonight. Then just get us off the road for a while. Seriously. I can't take much more of this. I don't want to be out here when the next one of those bloody energy pulses hits.
Welcome back, and in this part of the show, we're going to review some movies. So, first one up is No Tell Motel. <laughs> um, it's 2012, small to medium budget horror. It's uh, essentially a ghost story, remote location, final girl style movie. Now, it's a very familiar premise. A group of young people are on a road trip, and they find themselves cut off with nowhere to stay but a nearby abandoned motel. Now, unknown to them, uh, but known to us, the viewers, through a previous cutscene uh, stroke flashback, the motel was a site for a series of grisly mishaps and tragedies that were set into a chain reaction following the uh, accidental death of a little girl. Lo and behold, said little girl's restless spirit is still roaming the motel, preying on our cast one by one. So, you've got a familiar slasher, angry spook formula. But the hook here is that all of our cast have certain secrets which are holding from each other. And these come into play as the kills start to mount up. So you have, for example, somebody pregnant. You've got a somebody who's self-harming. You've got a drug addict, etc., etc. And uh, our, our ghost basically uses these or integrates these somehow into uh, how she uh, into how the cast meet their demise. For the most part, it's a well-acted movie and uh, it looks pretty good. It's well shot too. The motel itself is well represented with its dingy, run-down repair and dark, dreary decor. Um, and everybody, as I say, does pretty well with the performances. There's, there's nobody really letting this side down at all. The main problem for some people is that we've seen this formula a million times before. So if you're tired of like medium budget slashers or or spook movies, this isn't going to in any way convert you. It doesn't bring anything new to the table. It doesn't do it in a particularly novel way. It's just a join the dots style slasher stroke ghost story. But to be honest, I've got a fairly strong stomach for this kind of thing. It passed uh, 84 minutes in a fairly pleasant way, you know, so uh, I, I don't really have any complaints, particularly because I picked it up at That's Entertainment in their three for five pound deal. Um, and at, at that kind of uh, price tag, you really have little to complain about. So it's No Tell Motel 2012. And if you like your traditional kind of join the dot slasher like me, this is probably going to take a box for you. Okay, so on to our next movie, which is a 2012 outing, entitled Night of the Living Dead Resurrection. Now, this is uh, another movie by James Plum and Andrew Jones of the Mad Sands crew, um, who also did Silent Night, Bloody Night, The Homecoming, which we reviewed in our uh, special festive episode. This is another micro-budget production. Um, It's actually uh, Plum's first outing as director and obviously an unofficial sequel to Night of the Living Dead. This is a modern day adaptation of Romero's classic um, and uh, although we begin in the city or suburban area following um, the character of Ben played by Sue Remy, um, we soon find our way out into the sticks where we need another group of survivors this time a family of seven um, who are holed up trying to uh, resist the zombie apocalypse. 
Now, although it is sold and marketed very much as a zombie movie, uh, Night of the Living Dead Resurrection is much more invested in the human drama of a zombie apocalypse. The zombies themselves are an ever-present kind of background noise, if you like. They're applying pressure to the dynamics of this uh, family set up within the farmhouse. And I think this human drama is very much the strength of the movie. Um, The cast, for the most part, handle it very well. Uh, We've got a good array of actors and actresses here, and they do a fine job in terms of holding everything together and maintaining that drama. Highlights include Lee Bain, who plays Kevin, who's our uh, central alpha male. Mel Stevens, who you might remember from Silent Night, Bloody Night, The Homecoming. Uh, she played the uh, the lead in that. Um, she is Mandy here, who's like the uh, temptress sister. Kathy Saxondale is the uh, mother hen of the piece. Terry Dexter plays Gerald, who's uh, the father of piece, the piece. Uh, the shotgun-wielding farmer, if you like. The zombies themselves were convincing um, individually. Their makeup wasn't so bad. Um, they had the kind of contacts in. Uh, and for the most part, that, that worked very well. As a zombie story, it, it echoed uh, David Moody's Autumn for me in terms of having that strong character focus um, and not being front and centre within the movie. Um, and films like uh, the Scottish micro-budget production The Dead Outside, um, which I think also succeeded very well in terms of the, the human drama. As a homage piece to Night of the Living Dead, I think there's enough in terms of nods to the franchise to justify the connection. There's a great score within the movie, again by James Morrissey, who um, did the score for Silent Night, Bloody Night, The Homecoming. And I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So, again, a recommend in itself, but also uh, a, a movie I think that shows a lot of promise for the Mad Science Films crew. Um, it'll be really interesting to see James Plum and Andrew Jones moving forward. And as I said in my uh, review of Silent Night, Bloody Night, The Homecoming... Um, It'd be great to see if these guys had some real money in their hands, what they could do. Because on the micro-budget, they're really showing promise. So, you know, with some real money in their hands, I'd like to see what they'd they'd be able to to do. I think it would be something really special.
Okay, so um, got Sean Smith of us, and Sean was on the podcast before. He is the editor of uh, Skin Deep Tattoo Magazine, and we talked to him in our tattoo special, which I think was episode four. And I have the pleasure of chatting to Sean once again. Um, Sean, you're just called in the town, and we're in Cardiff. Just passing by. <laughs> uh, and you've been up to a bit of stuff, and we just thought we'd get a bit of a chance to chat again. So, um, we've been chatting vaguely about the different ways in which we write, um, and one of the things a lot of people ask me is just the actual mechanics of it. When do I write? How do I write? And we've been talking about just the differences between writing on a computer screen and uh, writing in a notebook, and you were saying that most of your stuff, in fact all of it, is done in a notebook, yes. pen and paper? Yep. But but it was it was through um, trial and error. I, I noticed myself that I was, as I was typing, I could, I could do maybe five ten minutes, and then I'd go, oh, maybe I'll have a look at the TV guide. Yeah. Or maybe I'll see what my hits are like on whatever. Or oh look, there's a new album out. I'll download that and I'll listen to it while I'm writing it. And it was just excuse after excuse. Yeah. And I finally figured out that. You just have to do the work. You mm. have to turn up and do the work. So I spent well, not a lot of money. But I spent a decent amount of money on a on a Waterman fountain pen, yeah, and a bottle of ink. And I went and bought um, half a dozen black moleskin books. Yeah, um, and I just sat down. I, I just had to do it longhand. Yeah. And it's a much better process because you, you don't self-edit along the way. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't preempt myself by going, how many words have I written? I'll ask the word counter. Yeah. And I haven't got a computer program telling me I, you shouldn't really write that way and put in a green underline because yeah, yeah. I will if I want. Yeah. And yeah. it was just, you, you can just get a lot further, a lot faster. Yeah. Um, and it feels like you're doing work. Yeah. I feel like I'm writing and being a writer. I used to write like that at one stage. The entirety of Plastic Jesus was written, pretty much the train going to and from work. And then I would uh, type it in the computer at night time. Do you do that or do you just build up notebooks full of stuff? Nope, just notebook after notebook. And I figured one day when it's finished, then I'll have the really enviable task of trying to decipher my own handwriting. Yeah. Which yeah. is. You can get pretty fast. Yes. And sometimes you look at it and you know what? This is like a line with a Y in the end yeah. of it, and you have to kind of go, mm, maybe it's an adjective. 
Probably. And then there'll be an asterisk and it'll take you a different direction and well, you'll have something written in there as yeah. well and it's difficult to decipher that. And sometimes I can go back and I'll find four paragraphs that I've drawn a box around and yeah. written, move this, um, and, and I don't know where to, but I, I think the game and what I've picked up is, you know, you, you need to be looking at something between 60 and 90,000 words for a book. Mm. I know roughly what my handwritten page count is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I know that three, four notebooks is a finished piece of work. Yeah. And it looks great. Um, have you got any finished books sitting around in this format? No. Uh, uh, I, I write each one differently. So we turn the lamp down low, which is my, which we talked about last time. Yeah. Which is my gothic y woman in black. There are four notebooks. One is empty. Two are full, and one is getting there. Uh, but I, I write to turn the lamp down low very specifically mm. after midnight by candlelight. Wow. I turn all the lights out. I have, sometimes I have music on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I very specifically write it after midnight till for a couple of hours um, because I'm really tired by that mm. point. And when you're tired, you tend to think things are a really good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it kind of lets me off the, the hook a little bit to go, not mad, but I, I find my defences are down. I don't self-edit. Yeah, I, yeah. I just write. Um, I mean, that, to me, that's a bit like method acting, really, isn't it? You, you put yourself in the location. <laughs> I started it just so as I'd have something interesting to say yeah. if it was ever finished. But I kind of I quite like it because it, it's a different experience writing by candlelight. Yeah, no, I really like that because it's, it's putting yourself in a location. It's it's one step away from being the character in Turn the Lamp Down Low, the isolated character in that house on his own. It's one of the things I keep thinking about doing myself is and taking myself away to a cabin in the woods and writing a book about a guy who's taken himself away to a cabin in the woods. Um, and you're almost there with that kind of method. Yeah, I think if you're if you're in that if you're in that environment, then you've got to get some kind of authenticity from it. Mm. Um, otherwise, I, I don't think it would come across. I mean, I think you can get very good at something, mm. and you can learn how to be very good. Let, let's take someone who won't mind if I say it, Dean Coombs. Yeah. is very good at pretending to be a really scary horror author. Yeah. But he's not really. He's no. some nice bloke with a Labrador <laughs> who has learned the formula. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. want the formula. I, I really wanted to sort of go, yeah, how would you really feel? Dark and quiet is kind of, you're just left alone. There's, people don't call. There's no one walking past the window. There's just you sitting at the table with a big church candle in a dish. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm always quite afraid of knocking over. <laughs> and I suppose, it, it, in a sense, what you're talking about there is letting the character drive, character or characters, drive the story. And it's something we've been talking about just off mic is plotting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that neither of us are so good at plotting. <laughs> we we kind of let the characters drive our stories. And for you, what are the advantages to that? And also then, do you see any disadvantages? The advantage is that if you haven't plotted it, your, char- your character might do something original and might act in a way that if you plotted it, you, you probably tend to fit into a, a stereotype a bit more, a yeah. bit, a bit yeah. more easy. Yeah. And I kind of like the fact that he, he, may, he may just 
deal with being scared by drinking two cups of coffee and going and standing outside, whereas if you plotted it, there would be a different chain of events. But by having those two cups of coffee and going outside might lead you to do something that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah. yeah. Turn all the lights out for some reason. Or, yeah. You could you could strike on gold, couldn't you? You know, I, mean, you know, I, I do wonder if people do heavily plot books, who plot them like, you know, chapter by chapter. Um, if they strike upon an idea halfway through, do they turn around and go, well, you know, that's going to be an off on a rewriting and not bother? Um, or do they go with it? Isn't that what James Patterson does? Each, each chapter is 1,000 words long. Yeah. And it's two pages. Mm. And it's quite obvious to me, uh, he sort of maybe got up in the morning and write, right, I'm going to write 1,000 words today, and that's chapter one. And yeah. in, in 123 days or 83 days, I'll have a book. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so it. you do 1,000 in the morning on uh, uh, Alex Cross plays Father Christmas, and then you could probably knock out another thousand words after lunch in, in a completely different mindset and you yeah. could probably write three novels which he genuinely does yeah, yeah, yeah. a year by yeah. doing a thousand words a day morning, yeah. noon and night it was one of my goals uh, after the new year was to dedicate myself to writing a thousand words every day and not bullshitting myself and messing around on Facebook posting up buy my book links mm-hmm. it is called work well, I, I currently, this, this last week, I've been knocking out 4,000 words a night on something else I'm doing called The Family of Noise. Yeah. Uh, and I did that for about five nights on the run. And that was genuinely from having finished my day job, just sitting down with the TV off and just going, I'm going to write. And, yeah. I, and I put about 4,000 words a night. And I don't know why, but that was a lot. And I suspect half of it was crap. But that's yeah. okay. But still moving stuff Because on. I can edit, because yeah. you've moved it on big time. Yeah. But yeah. Um, if you did a thousand words a day, that's uh, 365,000 words a year. That's three pretty hefty books in a year. That's what I work out. Hefty if you, books. Even if you take away time for editing, time for whatever, even if you subtract 150,000 words writing time, 150 days from that equation in a year, and you still have your three novels. Sometimes I think that when you sit down and work out the mathematics of writing, <laughs> right? It, it's like it's what you do when when you've weaned yourself off the internet. Yes. It's, it's kind of like oh, here I am writing. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll work out a word count system. Theorizing. Yeah, and it's kind of like oh, here I am working, but you're not. Yeah. Putting the damn plot down. That's the problem. Uh, the thing is, I mean, this is this is one of the things I'm interested in, in terms of talking to other writers as to how much you enjoy writing. Is it a bit like what Lawrence Block says in um, Telling Lies for Fun and Profit? He says he writes because he feels guilty when he doesn't write. Um, or is there a... I, I write because I feel guilty because Lawrence Block says I should feel guilty <laughs> because I don't write. You can believe other people's hype. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it isn't always an enjoyable pursuit. No, Sometimes it's, it's hateful. No, um, yeah, I find it especially hard because I write all bloody day long as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, a, a three three and a half thousand word article is is not scary, uh, and mm. I wrote that somewhere recently. Three and a half thousand words is not a lot anymore mm. because you get good at it. Yeah. But yeah. once upon a time, three and a half thousand words was a hell of a lot. Oh yeah. To say, mm. you, I think you just find different ways of 
stretching out a hundred words to different lengths, don't you? <laughs> but um, it is it is hard. I don't. I I have different ways, as we were just discussing. I I write I write travel things on my phone. I write short stories on my phone if I'm on a long train journey. Um, I write short stories in a in a notebook. I write my never-ending, never-to-be-finished novel in a bigger notebook. I've got notebooks for this. I've got notebooks with chapters in the things, the things that say that like chapter eight, and I don't know where the first seven chapters are. Yeah, because yeah. they're in something that I set fire to because I got tired of it and then that's just rubbish yeah, yeah. And I'm very bad at throwing things away if something's not working for me I won't keep it so has there been a lot of projects that you've just decided this is not working I'm not even going to try and labour it's not going to development hell it's just going straight to the BIN yeah yeah a lot wow yeah and it's brave to do that isn't it because I, I don't think I could do that there's, there's stuff I have sitting about in development hell which I, I know isn't going to work out but I'm not going to get rid of them wow. I just, I just kind of leave them there as a security blanket or something yeah I think I think that, that that's what it was for me it was like mm. a security blanket but all it did was annoy me and made yeah. me cross at myself that I hadn't finished them yeah so all I kept live was the things that I was really into because mm. if, if I wasn't into it why, yeah. why the hell would I expect anyone else to you know? yeah I've abandoned yeah. interviews for the mag halfway through just gone this is this is not worth the reader's time and attention. And then yeah. I had to mail them back and said, can we, can we do the interview again? Because one of, us, one of us was full of crap that day. Yeah. You know, it's just not working. But we're readers. Mm. I've, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll dump a book on the first chapter if it sucks. Oh, hell yeah. I don't yeah. waste my time. There's plenty yeah. of books out there. There is, yeah, too many. And I, wanted, I really wanted to be that when, when it actually well, reaches a critical mass. I wanted to be that person that was like, hey, you may write a version of High Fidelity or you may write a, a ghost of a woman in black kind of ghost story mm. or this and I just wanted it to be worth it when you turned up yeah you know don't anyone come knocking at my door and there's no one in yeah. there'll always be someone in who you get yeah. you, who knows but yeah. I just wanted to be happy and you've got to be happy with yourself very much so I think but uh, sometimes it's difficult to actually to know what, where the quality is um, especially if you're very close to a project I mean one of the things I've got a problem with is editing something to literally to oblivion um, and turn it apart so there's, there's nothing there uh, and I think that's as, as damaging for a writer and also for the, the piece they're writing as being over verbose would, would you let one of your books out <laughs> let's say you finished um, your next book Yeah. would you let it go out unedited Oh God, no! No! Oh God, no. no! But I'm always. This is a different process. I think is that you talk about you write like the first draft, pretty much you write it straight ahead, and there's no stopping and there's no going back to re-edit. Yeah. I'm the opposite. I will work from a Microsoft document. I'll be constantly re-editing, so I'm constantly just like growing the project from the inside out. I've tried to plot things. I've tried to just write first draft and then not stop. But I always just keep being dragged back into the, the start of it. I, I should do it more like that. There's, there's, a, there's an instance early on in, in Turn the Lamp Down Low where he, he finds some woodcuts that belong to his father. Mm. And somewhere along the line, I've abandoned that idea because he never talks about his father or the woodcuts ever again. Right. I meant it at the time, so it must have a purpose. So I'm a bit... I'm, I'm there at the moment kind of going... Hmm. 
what purpose so, is this? Well, yeah. Does it have a purpose, or do we need to actually go back and take it out? Right. Yeah. Or if you lived in in a house, mm-hmm. yeah, it's quite likely you might find something that belonged to your dad and never give it a second thought. Yeah. Does it have to mean something? It's a nice red herring. This is the thing. Yeah. But I don't. It's like if I got to the end of the book, you go, well, "What about the woodcuts?" Yeah. What the fuck? So you're, you're thinking about it with the reader's head as well as the writer's head? Obviously. I think I write like a reader. Mm. That, and that, that's, that's what I do. I write like a reader. If it, if it bores me, I'll stop. Or it's, I, mean, I think if, if you say, I write like this, and that prescribes a whole thing that other people will follow and go, well, that's the way John mm. yeah. Smith writes, or that's the way Wayne Simmons writes. So that's why they always write, and it's not necessarily true. We are all we're writing different ways. I, I started writing longhand because, because Clive Barker did. But, but you know, he, he said, I, I write this way because it's, it feels real, it feels like writing when you do it with a pen. Yeah. And yeah. it stops me from changing things every five minutes. Mm. You just have to keep going forwards. Well, those guys would have started out in typewriters, wouldn't they? There wouldn't have been any kind of going back and editing. You had to hammer out your thousand words and make everyone have a comment. Oh, there's some great stories out there. Like people, I really want to be a writer, but I haven't got a computer. <laughs> well, you, know, you could probably buy a, a biro and a notebook for a pound. Yeah. Really? You mail me <laughs> if you're really desperate. And I'll, I'll get them for you. It, there's so many excuses. Mm. I don't have the time, is another one. Get up an hour earlier, and there's an hour. You know, go to bed yeah. an hour later. Do a Ferris Bueller. Yeah. You could do 5,000 words in, a, in an eight hour day. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But I think the illusion of, as we were saying, the illusion of being a writer sounds great. Mm. But really, I think the illusion of being Stephen King probably sounds great. Yeah. 30 years in with not many worries and a nice backlist. I think the reality of being a writer, or a writer starting out, or a struggling writer, Mm. Or writing on his way down, yeah, it, it's hard. Oh God, yeah, it's hard being a writer of of, of articles in, in mm. magazines. It's I couldn't work for one of the daily papers because that yeah. looks horrible. That looks politically driven, and but people get off on it, don't they? It's, I suppose with magazines, like obviously you're the editor, skin deep, but you write a good part of that magazine each month. Yeah. Your editorial uh, job also involves a heavy amount of writing. Yeah. But how how much feedback do you get in that? I mean, do people t- do people write in and they say I like that, I didn't like this, and they get in touch with you on Facebook or, or whatever? Or, I have know. a lot, an awful lot of people that write to me and say, "Have I skin deep?" And I read your column, which might, and I read Paula's column at the back, and I look at the pictures in between. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well that means a lot of work that I do. Without my name on it, yeah. isn't getting written, isn't getting read. Yeah, yeah. But my my editor is like eight hundred words. It's easy to be funny or, or whatever in eight hundred words. And Paulus is a similar kind of thing, isn't yeah. it? It's more of a reflective. It's just like you look at the world and go, yeah. I saw this. It was funny or it was sad. Um, the, the feedback is 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 odd. It's trying to change the magazine from something pictorial that people look at to see new tattoos or whatever into a lifestyle magazine is quite hard yeah um, because you're introducing people to things they might not normally read yeah I, I yeah. don't I don't think any of us would any of us survive in a different magazine I don't know I tend not to edit people I think I said this before yeah if, yeah if, if you want to give me something and it's crap 
Mm. It's going to have your name on it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I make sure it's spelt right. Yeah, yeah. But if it doesn't work, I'm not going to change your style. If you're calling yourself a writer, then why would I read? I know editors who justify their existence mm. by, God, I must edit this and do this and must make it sound like that. And why? Yeah. Why don't you just write it all yourself and save yourself pain anymore? Um, I, I've, I've experienced two types of editing. Um, I'll give an example. One type of editing I experienced was from a boss in work. And I used to write training notes. And she used to read through those training notes and then basically change everything with a red pen. And that was so unhelpful because she'd change like a word like, I don't know, she'd change uh, then to there or whatever, you know. It made absolutely no difference apart from just being her favourite way of doing it. Yeah. So I made a point of centre. I don't like the way you're going through my work with red pen. Um, it's really unhelpful and grinds me down. I'm actually feeling about school again. So she changed to a green pen. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and kept a little more positive. <laughs> um, the other editing I've experienced is uh, the most recent book, Plastic Jesus, was edited by Steve Haynes. And Steve is a guy who wants to retain your voice but helps you kind of capture your voice. And he'll get rid of things he knows are right and or knows are wrong and you know are wrong as well. And that could be a whole chapter could go. But at the end, you can't argue with him. And that's helpful editing. So I think it just depends on, on whether the editor can home in on what your voice is and what your vision is and can connect with it. Um, or are they just being pernickety and changing words for the sake of just making it all look uh, like the way they're right, you know? Yeah, I think but, yeah, sometimes that does happen. Yeah. People have to justify their jobs I can't imagine you know Neil Gaiman may, may, may have gotten to a point that his work is largely unedited I would say for sure yeah. um, Stephen King and anyone that thought it might be a good idea to edit it would be not be looked on very kindly but perhaps by an agent or well, a bit yeah. I don't know who, I mean who would who would dare edit somebody like that I don't know if I would have the balls to say uh, you know Stephen King you know these five chapters are a bit much yeah let's just lose the five chapters in the middle (laughs) he's going to say it but you know that could be wrong I mean we're speculating he might have somebody he's very close to and and will have that conversation with him very much but but, but there are definitely writers there out in the world without naming names it's easy to use people like Stephen King and Dean Coops because I love love them both I've read and enjoyed their books and have contributed to their houses over the years yes so I don't mind and they're big enough to take yeah, it and it's, 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 they're, it's, they're just names used as a yeah it's, they're it's just the so big you can handle anything we say yeah I think I think the point is that it's different if I was picking on you here. well Wayne <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, there, there, I suppose the point is that there are writers out there who have grown so big that nobody will edit them and that's definitely a truth you know? but there's people like Bukowski who who uh, who is one of my real writing heroes who just wrote whatever the hell he pleased and a small press put it out and he became a cult author yeah uh, and, and that's fine too yeah, yeah Lawrence Block is probably not the greatest in the world but I really like what he I does. love his stuff it's yeah. kind of like you know Kiss or, Kiss or no Led Zeppelin mm. man they sold a lot of albums yeah a lot more because, fun than Led Zeppelin because they were fun and yeah. sometimes you just want to sit down with some fun yeah I've never but read a Dickens book in my life Block's a very interesting one because he's never been a bestseller to my knowledge 
But he's maintained a career steadily yeah. over years of writing and writing alone. Pretty much on the mid-list. You could say like, he, he's a successful mid-list writer. He's kind of just knocking out these books. He's written enough of them to maintain an income. He's Do you not think that. that there comes a point where... Let, let, let's, let, let's take these books on the table uh, and let's pretend they're in a series. Fever, Flu, Dull Parts, and there's another six. You've written nine novels all in a... You know, it's got the same character running through. Yeah, yeah. At some point, it doesn't matter how good they are. Yeah. You've yeah. written nine books mm. and are planning on writing a tenth. Yeah. That means you are a writer mm. who is writing and people are obviously reading. Yeah, regardless of who's to say what's good. Yeah. I suppose a lot of those, um, a lot of the, the kind of crime, especially the earlier crime stuff, the pulp stuff, followed a very basic format or plot anyway. So, you know, it was... If you invest in the lead investigator, you're probably just going to read all those books and not really care so much that you're reading the same book ten times over and over again. That's how I like my crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this I started out. I used to read my my, my grandmother's. Uh, John Creasy had a a character called the Toff that was just the direct ripoff of the Saint, uh, and she she used to have tons of like uh, Raffles books. Uh, the Toff, the Saint, there were, there were just hundreds of them. Yeah. These guys are like Charteris and um, John Creasy. John Creasy is well known. I think he used to put out something like seven novels a year and just bang them out. Yeah. You know? But I, I found out, um, as well as robbing my, my parents and grandparents, because I used to be a real um, three investigators fan. Yeah. And, and Hardy Boys, I went through that period. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I found out that um, they were franchised. Mm. Someone at the office would plot them, yeah. and they'd give them to a writer, yeah. and go, write this. And so who, who, was, who was the writer of those? Credited writer? Was there a pseudonym for um, to adopt? I, I can't remember if it's The Three Investigators, which was Alfred Hitchcock and The Three Investigators. Yeah. That's how it was pitched at you. So mm. you thought it might have been Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, but he, he appeared for like two chapters in the very first book and then that was it. But um, it was basically just a, just a bunch of uncredited ever writers wow. who just used to bang them out and they'd publish them once every three months. Yeah. But those were in the days. Those were the days when you could buy stuff like that and, mm. and, and you would buy stuff like that because there was three channels on the TV and... Even if there was three channels, you weren't allowed to watch it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the good old days. Yeah, but um, I've feet. lost my train of thought now. <laughs> I don't know. I think as a as a writer, I think you should write. And I know we we probably have very different ways of doing it. I I, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I, I, I it scares me. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'd really like to write a big crime series. Mm. But I know after the first or second one, I get a little bit bored, yeah, yeah, and I've got to challenge myself. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of like a bit hands off, and very sort of just one shot, just that. Yeah. And and as I, as I know, I said before, I really like. You look at David Bowie's career; the only constant is change. He changed so mm. much that that's what you expected. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. So if I want to write horrible, great, and then oh, you change, and you either like my style. Mm. Or, or you don't. Yeah. Stephen King's got away with that, hasn't he? Because he did his fantasy series. Yeah. Um, he's done comics. 
Yeah. Uh, he's done all kinds of different stuff. He gets shoved into the horror section, which probably necessarily isn't horror. Dolores Claiborne was in the horror book. Yeah, he'll probably find it in the horror section. Under the Dome is not really horror, is it? Yes. It's a bit more sort of... It's a, it's a kind of um, strange... Just a sci-fi type thing. You Sometimes know? a story is yeah. just a story. Yeah, that's basically... And I think he's... I mean, Sean Hudson is a writer I enjoy, but a lot of his stuff is kind of urban crime. Stuck in the horror section. Did he? He, he coined that term for himself, didn't he? Did he? <laughs> <laughs> I quite like it. I think I'm going to coin it for, for myself. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it is hard, because, I mean, if, if you wrote, let's say you went home and went, well, you know, I've got a really good idea. I'm going to write High Fidelity. Mm. Say, uh, Ripper, Ripper. Nick Hornby. And, and, and your publisher was like, yeah, and then all the bookshops go, but all his other books are here. Yeah. How are you supposed to sell it? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's and that puts them off, I think. I think most people in that situation would, do, would use a pseudonym for their, yeah. their crime sections of series or their, their contemporary fiction series and st- still write the horror or whatever under their own name. Um, How pissed off would you be if it really sold really well yeah. and the movie rights were bought for it and you could never reveal... That would be awful, wouldn't it? it really would. Is that what happened to King with Richard Langman? Oh, oh Richard, Richard Backman. Richard Backman. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was uh, obviously the, the story about, um, what do you call her? Harry Potter girl? That's a great story. Yeah. Whether it's true or not. We don't know. Have you mm. read it? No. no. Absolutely. Incredibly excellent. Really? Cooking crime calling is a brilliant crime book. Oh, right. Honestly, okay. it's up there with the best. Wow. I picked it up and I thought, yeah. Did you know it was her when you picked it up um, at the time? No, but I was. Ha- I think I was about halfway through. Did there a big reveal? And, and it didn't matter. I was already hooked into the story. Yeah. Like, hey, this is really good. Perfect. And it's really good. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's, it's a cracking plot. You can't guess at what's going on. It's, but it's just so well written. I mean, the next one's coming out in June, I think. Um, they've, they've kept the pretense of all the PR materials haven't got her name on it at all. Oh, right, so they're just going to keep the pseudonym alive? Yeah. Wow. Which is nice. Yeah, well, at least it's, it's, it's given her some respect in terms of what she decided to do with that. I don't know, we're all looking for that JK story, aren't we? I'd love to be interviewed by the Times one day with people yeah. going, so, how did it all be around? With a notebook and a candle and just went for it and got lucky. Yeah. Plucked out of the slush pile, but... Hmm. You just wonder if those stories exist anymore. We should... I think people just make notes anyway. Yeah. <laughs> if you've written four novels that no one ever wanted, but, you know, the first one you sold, people did want, I think just bury the others. Well, Philip Pullman, there's a guy, he wrote, obviously, Amber Spyglass, one he's most drawing for. But he'd written a lot of novels before then that weren't really on anyone's yeah. radar. Yeah. You know? Um, and I haven't read any of those. I read all of the Northern Lights series, not any of his other stuff. I think I read one of them, the, the, the one that they made into a, a TV movie. With, who played Rose and Doctor Who? Billy Piper. Oh, Billy Piper, yeah. Um, something yeah. to do with a train and some smoke and steam or uh, something. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard, isn't it? If, I think if people want to write, you just be prepared for the worst, be prepared for the whole world not liking you and for yeah. never getting published mm. and do it for yourself yeah anything you get on top of that bonus yeah that's a, that's a really good way to look at it you, you should write because you have to write but you should do that with yeah. 
I mean, with, 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 with anything, if, you, mm. if you're really into art, it doesn't mean you shouldn't paint because no one's buying it. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's a and very it's, good point. It, we, if, we live in this consumer kind of mentality that if somebody doesn't consume what we put out there, that, that it's worth Then we failed whenever yeah. putting it out there is a, a product in itself. You know? um, but really, all it is is being, is not having the right marketing, perhaps. Mm. It can be simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I struggle with. The one thing I'm always really aware of is people are always uh, unsure of how to pronounce my name, and, and, you yeah. think, and you kind of think, well, maybe I should change it. It's not an easy website address to remember. Yeah. Maybe I should call it fireinthehead.com, which I could just tell people. Yeah. But then that's not really what I'm doing, and that's not what all the authors in the world do. Yeah. Stephenking.com. Nowhere yeah. to go for the stuff. Yeah. And I worry about that. And why do I worry about it? Because I should be writing instead of worrying about yeah. it. But it gets back I can't up, pronounce it? hardly any of the Scandinavian noir authors I like. Exactly, yeah. And I don't care. You just make it up. And I'll tell you what, those guys get read okay. Yeah. You know, by the, by the truckload, really. They, if you want to make it in, in publishing these days, learn a foreign language and be a translator. Yeah. Because there's a lot of books out there yeah. that, that need working on. <laughs> that would be the way. Okay, so I mean, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this segment up, but um, just to let people know about your new book, has this been released? Have I got a new book? Uh, I have, yeah. You do, it's yeah. not a very long book. <laughs> it's so <laughs> short, I forgot I wrote it. <laughs> so it's do you want to be honest? It's called The Eternity Ring? It is called The Eternity Ring. Where could folks get hold of it, and can you give us a little bit of a blurb about what it's about? Uh, you, can, you can get hold of it um, on Amazon. Yeah. Type in The Eternity Ring you'll find another book called Eternity Ring. And if you're not selecting your results by genre and just say all, you'll mm. also find a shit ton of rings. <laughs> we, um, but if you select books, it's, it's there on the first three or four items. <laughs> you don't have to look very far. Um, or you can get it for um, iBooks and The Nook and all those other things at, at my own site. Okay, and your site is? Is, is seansmith.co.uk. Sean spelled S-I-O-N, which is Excellent. Welsh. Yeah. And w what is it about? It's about a boy who is not really doing anything but reading his copy of Emil and the Detectives by a lake, and he watches an old man, uh, an oldish man, behaving strangely at the water's edge. Right. And... Nothing particularly of any value has happened in the rest of his life, except that one event, which kind of was so was so burned on his psyche, if you like, that he thinks about it quite a lot. Right. And um, it's it's very short. It's ten thousand words, five chapters, uh, and the the story moves along by there being huge gaps. So, chapter one, he's twelve. In chapter two, he's 32, yeah. in chapter 3 he's 52, yeah. uh, and so on. And um, <laughs> it's a little bit Donnie Darko, I guess. Donnie Sun's Darko crossed with um, um, Thomas Hardy. There's a blurb in it. I think it's very Welsh. It's partly true. Oh, right, yeah. Okay. Partly true. Yeah. Very small, partly true. <laughs> And it's only 99 pence. 99 pence on all good ebook providers. 
Um, I think Amazon screwed it up a little bit more. I think it's about £1.23 for the Kindle. Well, with this dress. But 99 pence direct from me. Excellent. Yeah. Okay, so we'll hopefully hear more from you very soon. But Sean, thanks for joining us again at PAC. Thank you, sir. I'm Brian Sammons, and I'm an author, editor, critic, and professional miscreant. Let's get the shameless plugging right out of the way first. My latest anthology is called World War Cthulhu, and it's a collection of Lovecraftian war stories. It is being published by Dark Regents Press, and in it you will find all kinds of ways of how the horrors of the Cthulhu mythos can meld with the horrors of war. It's more than just mankind's struggle with cosmic terrors, although you will find plenty of stories of that in the book. Also, there are a bunch of great authors involved in the project, such as John Shirley, Cody Goodfellow, Jeffrey Thomas, W.H. Pugmire, C.J. Henderson, Robert Price, and many more. It is being funded right now through Indiegogo, and it's currently at 91%. And for anyone that pledges through the Indiegogo campaign, you will get a special limited edition that will not be available once the crowdsourcing ends. There are many editions to choose from, such as ebooks, paperbacks, hardcovers, and deluxe signed and numbered hardcovers. All of them will contain a ton of amazing illustrations by artist Wayne Miller and a killer cover by Vincent Chong. And once again, these special editions are only available while the Indiegogo is going on. So, if you're a fan of weird Lovecraftian cosmic horror and want to see modern mythos masters take that and blend in the horrors of war in stories set all throughout the ages, from the fall of Troy, through both world wars, to the modern day, and even far beyond that, please go to Indiegogo.com, search for World War Cthulhu, and help us make this already great book even better, with more stories and more art added as the stretch goals are met. Okay, back to the real reason why I am here. I was asked by Wayne to judge the latest flash fiction contest, 
and I must say that I really enjoy doing it. There are so many terrific tiny terror tales to choose from that just picking three of them wasn't easy. But making tough decisions is sort of what I do, so here are the three flash fiction pieces that spoke to me the loudest. At number three, there is this poetic piece by Dave Lightfoot. I thought it was simple but elegant, and a great glimpse into someone's psychosis. Here is Wayne himself to give you all a listen to it. The colour blue. Focus on blue. Blue is calming. The wall is blue. Look at the wall. All four walls are blue. My clothes are blue. My bed is blue. Doctor told me to focus on something blue. His eyes are blue. Put them in my grinder. Calm. Blue. On to number two. This is from Jay Faulkner, and it's another short look at a psychotic. This one is less poetic and far more graphic, and since the same can pretty much be said about me, it just edged out the previous one by a hair. Once again, here is Wayne with the story. Wayne bought a knife once. It called to him. Bone handle and its sharp shining blade. He called it Hope. Brought it to the girls who laughed. He loved Hope, but she wasn't tidy. He bought a pig and called it Grinder. The girls were never found, not even a trace. Now we come to number one. The best of the best. This one by Daryl Duncan had a hint of the supernatural in it and almost a bit of a Twilight Zone feel to it. That's why it really resonated with me the strongest. It is also told from the victim's point of view and that gave it some extra weight. Death is always bad, but the fate in Daryl's short story is far worse than that. Now back to Wayne with this month's winner. As the organ grinder played, I sat in the street beside him, my horrible little monkey hands outstretched, my eyes pleading for someone to recognize me. My eyes were the only thing left of me that were human. So there you have it, the three best pieces of flash fiction for the month, as chosen by me. I would like to thank everyone that took the time to write a little something for this contest, and I'd like to thank Wayne for inviting me to judge it. Take care, everyone. Goodbye.